Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Uh, chapter 12, verse 12 through verse 31, we're going to wrap up this section uh, that was initially supposed to be two, and so we decided to bring them together, and I think you'll see why uh, here in a minute. And so if you, don't, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible back in the, in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use that table of contents at the front, and the uh, big numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers are going to be verses. And so you can find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 31. Hey, let me, let me read the whole thing so we can just kind of marinate in that for a moment, and then we'll, we'll walk through this uh, a section at a time, not necessarily a verse at a time. Paul writing to the church there in Corinth. And he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. He continues. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I, I have no need of you, nor again can the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, are, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving it greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have some care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gift of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will still show a more excellent way. By point of admission, I hate teamwork. Like I just really don't like it. I love being on a team. I love winning with a team. But it seems like in terms of academics, which is what I went much further with than any type of athletic endeavor, in terms of academics, I always got stuck on, on a team or on a group that there were one or two people who, man, they did not pull their weight, right? And the only thing they were exceptionally good at was, was bringing a terrific excuse as to why they didn't do their work. And, and I just really despise this, and it taught me not to want to work with other people. Not that I couldn't do that well, but, but they couldn't, and that was the problem. 
And so this, this was kind of the perpetual thing for me until I was in a, a class in college. I was in this rhetorical criticism class, and we're going through, I'm like, this is great. I got, I got tests, I got papers, I got quizzes. Like, it's all on me to make the good grade. He's like, you know what, and we're going to do a group assignment. I'm like, I hate you. I'm Q-dropping this class. I'm changing my major. I don't want anything to do with this. But he said, here's the deal. As a part of the assignment, you get to grade your peers. Paradigm shift. <laughs> Paradigm shift. Like it sent me on the road to get my PhD so I could grade other people. And so as a part of that, we had uh, a, a member of our group. Man, she did not get anything done. And so at the end of it, we all told her, like you never showed up to our meetings in the presentation that you actually said, I'm sorry, I didn't finish my part. And so we feel compelled to give you less than a stellar grade. Teamwork, as Graham's baseball coach would say, makes the dream work. Or in her case, it makes the nightmare live. <laughs> now Paul, in this, he wants us to understand that the way a church functions is through this understanding of diversity and interdependence. So we are diverse. We have different skills and giftings. But we're also incredibly interdependent. We need one another to make this thing uh, work well, to make it be what God would have it to be. Now, I want us to look back just for a second at two verses. Back in 12, chapter 7, chapter 12 and verse 7, he said, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we have this understanding that the spiritual gifts that you've been given, that the skills that God has allowed you to grow in, that who you are, is meant to be used and leveraged for the benefit of those around you, right? And so there's this decidedly interdependent nature in that, that they need you in the utilization of your gifts to help them be all that they can be. And, and conversely, you need them in the use of their gifts to help you be all that you can be for the furtherance of God king, God's kingdom and, and the most amount of impact that you're able to have locally, globally, and interpersonally. And then in verse 11, he says, all these were empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So it's this understanding that, that you're not trying to, uh, to manifest things that aren't there. You're not trying to, to use things you don't have. God has chosen and given things to you specifically tailored for you and within the concourse of your life to be used for those around you, right? So God has, he knows you, he made you, he created you, he knew the community that you'd be in, and he knew the needs of the community that you'd be in, and he gifted you for that community, for their benefit, for their good. And so with those things understood, he comes in and he wants to work against the discord and the infighting there in Corinth. So he says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And so he's building this kind of theological understanding of the church. And so he says the church is the body of Christ. You see this in Colossians. You see Jesus' teaching of this in the Gospels. The church is the body of Christ. And so the ESV renders this members, but we understand that if you look at your body, you have an arm. Everybody stick your arm up in the air and say, hey, arm. There you go. I'm sorry for the, those of you who don't. And so, and so we, we have arms, we have legs, we have toes, we have various appendages and parts. And this is what he's talking about. Although we are many, we have many different parts, we are one, we are Christ. And so certainly within this, there is a local and a universal context. And so all of these things have to work in concert with one another to be any good. All these things have to work together. But we see, and many of us have been a part of churches, where there's this terrific amount of discord and infighting 
because one particular aspect or part of the body wants to be more pronounced, more well-recognized than uh, the other parts, right? But in terms of this, we understand that if they don't work in harmony with one another, then they are not fulfilling and living up to what God has called them to be. We have to work together. So we have many members, but we're all one part. Now look at verse 13. It's a little bit curious. He says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In one spirit, and it's the same spirit, uh, going back to last week, that we have received our gifts from. He says in verse 5, There are a variety of service, but the same uh, Lord. But there are a variety of gifts, rather, in verse 4, but the same Spirit. And so this one Holy Spirit is, is what we've been brought into the church through. You know, John, uh, in John's Gospel, in John 1.33, speaks of Jesus. He says, look, I've baptized with water, but one is coming after me, and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so we have this understanding that baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a separate experience from salvation. So it's not that, that, that I come to faith here, and, and at some point later in my life, there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit. According to what John is talking of Jesus, we see that baptism in the Holy Spirit is something that Jesus is doing, and it happens at the moment of our salvation. You are saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and resides in you and equips you with a variety of giftings for the benefit of those around you. And so John's, or uh, Paul, rather, here in verse 13 is using this this introduction is speaking of it in terms of baptism. Now, you might ask the question, why would he make it so incredibly difficult to understand? Why would he speak of it in terms of baptism? Well, if you've been journeying through this book with us, you'll remember back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, in verses 10 through 17, there's this, all this kind of factionalism that's broken up according to who has baptized who. So imagine if, if we just kind of took this, and so this side over here, you got baptized by Jay, and you got baptized by me, and you got baptized by Justin, and you got baptized... Uh, by Jesse, and then you guys are kind of the self-dunkers over here, right? And so, and then you begin to kind of break up a kind of party factionalism on the basis of who you identified by who took you and lowered you under the water until we saw bubbles. And that's what's happening there in Corinth. And so they say, I was baptized by Peter, I was baptized by Apollos, and I was baptized by Paul. And Paul says, oh, hold on, you need to understand something. There should be no schism, for in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. There's this radical unifying thing that happens on the basis of this. And so he summarily says in verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. You know, there's this local and universal aspect of this. This past week, we were blessed and encouraged, and it's just amazing to be able to work with almost 30 different churches in our community, right? So we came together with, with Methodists, with Presbyterians, with Pentecostals, with, with Bible churches, and with, with people who haven't decided what they want their denomination to be called yet. And we came together with them to be able to be impactful in this city all together. Based on the idea out of Jeremiah 29, 7, that I had, where the city where I've sent you as exiles, bless the city, seek its welfare and where I've sent you. And so we're working with them. And so that's this universal aspect of it, right? That we have many different churches and, and they all consist of many different people. And that is challenging and beautiful at the same time. It's challenging because there are real differences. There are real differences, and, and, and there are lines that we would say, man, we're not going to cross this line. This is kind of where we go, and we can go no further. And so we would say we believe the exclusivity of Scripture. We believe the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. And that kind of outside of those things, we, we just can't have partnership in this regard or for this enterprise we can't. 
And so there's this wonderfully universal aspect of it. And so the work that Justin and Priya are doing, uh, the work that the Hucks are doing, and all the various people we partner with, there's this universal aspect where we're all tied together in one spirit. But there's a localizing aspect of it. Now, in terms of the church universal, I am limited in my ability to know someone who's at work in another church in town. Like, I just am. By virtue of the number of points of commonality and, and, and life overlap that we can have, I'm limited in my ability to do that. But the local church provides greater ability to have a closer connection with these people. And even within the local church, life groups and Sunday school provide terrific opportunities to find yourself in your life coming in close contact with other people for your edification and for their good as well. Amen? And so we see this. It's got this universal. It's got a local but it necessitates our involvement in both. Neither one nor the other, but both at the same time, that we have an open hand and say, yes, we want to work together with our partners in the city, but we want to work together with our partners here at this church, people who have identified with this local body, who have given to it, and who serve it faithfully to God's glory and to their good. So Paul wants to give them an illustration. He wants them to understand this by way of Metaphor, And so he, he begins to talk in, in 15 through 20 in terms of kind of the various component parts of their body. And so he does it somewhat humorously. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Imagine that as I stand here, my foot said, you know what, I'm friggin' done with you, I'm gone, and just started walking down the stage. That'd be really awkward, right? Right now, most of my body's weight is on my right foot, so I suppose it wouldn't be terrible if my left foot took off walking. But if it was my right foot that took off walking... I would kiss the ground, and some of you think I'll do that anyway. But as he's going here, he, he kind of spells it again. They say, well, well, of course, that's ridiculous. He say, that would, make, uh, that would not make any sense, nor would it make it any less a part of the body. And so locally, locally, if, if you would say that if you, being a part of this body, say, look, I, you know, I just don't need the people around me. I just don't need them. I don't need their gifting. I don't need their mess in my life. Paul would say that makes no sense. And your testimony of this, your set in mind of this, makes you no less a part of the body. All it makes you is disobedient. All it makes you is, is a member or a part of the body that seeks to be independent of every other part. Look at the diversity in this. We've got feet. We've got hands. We've got ears in verse 16. What if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. Effectively, it looks and it says, this brother over here, he's, he's remarkably talented. Why can't I be like him? Well, because I can't be like him, because I can't be like her, I'm no longer a part of this body. What is this? This is effectively what we see is when we go out and we try and find a church that looks just like us. It looks just like us. Notice here that the part of the body looks at the other one, it takes it in and it says, it's not like me, and therefore I'm not a part of the body. What Paul is driving at is that we, ne we need, we have to have diversity. And the Spirit has given us diversity. So whether or not we look alike, we are drastically different internally. And God has gifted us and made us to be, through the work of His Holy Spirit, incredibly diverse. We have different victories. We have different problems. We're diverse by the work of His Spirit. He says, if the whole body, verse 17, were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Do you see the necessity there? And so if my whole body, if I'm some giant gelatinous eye sitting up here rolling around on the stage, and you said, 
Hey, can you smell the roses? They know, but I see them every time I roll around and around and around. Verse 18, he says, but as it is, listen to this, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 11, it already told us that God had appointed, he has apportioned for you various gifts. But we see within this, God has arranged. That God has arranged that some of us be more deranged than others. That God has arranged that he has orchestrated that all we are in this business together and he has chosen us for his good work and for his kingdom to be expanded but do you ever think about it that way i mean god has you here today this sunday member non-member visitor traveling through whatever he has you here for the benefit of someone else in this body he has the challenges you went through this week here so that some brother or sister could come alongside you and be an encouragement. He has the victories you experienced this week so that you could sit beside this brother or sister and say, hey, how are you doing today? And they just pour out with honesty and say, oh, I'm terrible. Life's awful. Things are miserable. So that you, from this place of security, can turn to them and say, man, I I had an amazing week this week. So God has prepared me to be an encouragement to you today. Or he's allowed some of us to go through terrific hardships and difficulties so that when they're pouring out their heart and they're broken and they're struggling, you can say, man, I have been there. I know what it is to go through miscarriage. I know what it is to go through divorce. I know what it is to lose a job. I know what it is to, and so on and so forth. He has chosen you, he has arranged you, and he has called you to be intimately and integrally involved. Verse 19 says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. We can't exist as a single entity of individuals on our own. Having no regard and no understanding for the distinctions that God has wonderfully and beautifully created and woven into the tapestry of this local body, right? And so we recognize the differences that he's allowed us to have and how beautiful they are and the experiences and how different they are and all these working together so that we might be one body. Verses 21 through 24 really give us a sense of the interdependent nature of these things. He says, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. They they just quite simply can't say this. And I would tell you that that in some sense, our attitudes towards one another are kind of tacitly endorsing this idea that we have no need of the people around us. Most of us, myself included on occasion, we have this desire to be incredibly uh, independent instead of being interdependent. Because independence is wonderful and it's freeing and and people are absolutely, some of you are absolutely exhausting. I did write that, didn't I? (laughs) Really need to read these things before I get up here. No, but it's true, some of you are. And so look what he says here. He says, I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head of the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Oh, this is, I can't believe Paul wrote this. This is radically offensive. But it's this understanding that, that some of us in here, and if we're just going to be honest, some of us in here, our lives are messier than others, right? It's true enough. Some of us in here, our lives are messier than others. We have a more complicated uh, set of circumstances and conditions and some of which we've created on our own. Some of which are just virtue, uh, they're there by virtue of the fact that we live in a sinful and a fallen world. But our lives are more difficult. 
And there's this tendency, and I think there's this societal pressure to shield the people around you from your crazy, right? To shield the people around you from the mess of your life. And like, I understand that societal pressure. And, and to a certain degree, I think it's appropriate that, that we don't need to just kind of emotionally vomit on everybody we see. Like, these are all my issues. These are all my issues. And really, the person is just holding the door for you. Right? They didn't even ask how you were. They're just holding the door. But Paul writes and says, the weaker among you are indispensable. They can't be gotten rid of. They're there for the stronger of you to minister to. They, in some sense, are an outlet for ministry. They're there to be supported by those who are stronger. Those without sight need those with sight. Those without hearing need those with hearing. He says that these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. We absolutely need one another. And so it is necessary, it is required for those of us who are going through various seasons of weakness and difficulty to go to our brothers and sisters around us and just say, man, this is what my life is right now. These are the things I'm going through. So that your brothers and sisters who are stronger and who are on the far side of difficulties can undergird you and support you. I hope you hear this. There's this tendency, I think, when we encounter difficulties, when we go through particularly rough patches in life, to say, I don't want to be a hindrance. I don't want to be, I just don't want to be a burden to someone else. But man, my reading of this, and, and, and I hope what the Holy Spirit is showing you in this, that the weakness you're currently experiencing is required for somebody who's not going through weakness. God is calling them to be radically invested in your life. God is calling you to share your weakness with those around you so that they can use their gifting to lift you up. You and your weakness and your brokenness are indispensable in this place. This is a place to be broken. This is a place to be weak. So that by the power of God's spirit, he might weave us more closely to one another so that he might be glorified. And again, he goes on the latter half of verse 24. He says, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. So why has God done this? Why has God allowed some of us to be weak and some of us to be strong? Some of us to have this gift and some of us to have that gift. And when Corinth, it was creating a terrific amount of discord because there were those who had one particular gift over another and they would you know, pop their suspenders and say, or their toga or whatever they're wearing and to say, check me out, check out my gifting, check out how amazing my life is and everybody look at me. Everybody just marvel at me. And this is what it, this is what it had done for them. Now remarkably, what Paul writes is says, the reason God has created some of you to be weak and some of you to be strong is so that there wouldn't be schisms, there wouldn't be divisions among you. So they've taken this thing that God has created, the weakness that he's entrusted to some of them, the strength that he's given to others, they've taken this and allowed it to be points of division and schismatic. And he says, man, the reason God has given this to you is that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The same care. Isn't that great? Isn't that terrific? 
that those among you who are strong can look at your weaker brother or sister and have a care or a concern for them. And that those of you who are weaker, check this out, those of you who are weaker, who are struggling, and who feel emotionally, intellectually, physically, economically, like you're at the bottom and it can't go any lower. This is what it looks like for you to care for your brothers and sisters who are stronger beside you. Sharing your brokenness. Sharing your weakness. No brave faith. No empty thanks. No mask. Sharing your brokenness. This is your turn to be ministered to. This is your turn to be strengthened. This is your turn to be encouraged. If you want to extend the care to the people around you and you're broken, share your brokenness. This is what he calls us to. This is the radical type of investment and involvement he describes in this body of Christ that I would argue and I think Experience proves this can only ever be experienced locally. The looser our bonds of connection are, the shallower our friendships will be. The stronger our bonds of connection and membership are, the deeper our friendships will be. The more we'll share with one another, and the more radically we will reveal and display the body of Christ. He's given this so that there might not be divisions among us because we'd so, be so stinking busy caring for one another. There'd be no reason to divide over things that really don't matter in terms of eternity. Verse 26, he gives us an illustration of this. And effectively, they are our cares and our celebrations. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It's easy to suffer alongside people, right? Somebody comes to you and says, this has happened. And so you rush to their bedside, you rush to their home, you cook them meals. Man, Baptists are great at feeding sorrows. We're really good at it. But in some sense, it's more difficult to celebrate with people. But it's so incredibly needed and necessary. And I think one of the reasons this comes about is because in the midst of somebody having sorrow and difficulty... Do you ever feel a little bit out of place? Somebody's like, oh, man, my dad died. Oh, man, I just lost my job. And you're like, I was going to share a good piece of news, but now I've got to dig deep and find something bad. My shoes untied. <laughs> just tripped. Really awkward. There's this, this deal like we want to share in kind. Somebody share something sad, we want to share something sad. I, I think, I, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of that that just feels normal and natural. But more than just sharing sad things, God calls us to share good things. It's amazing things this week that, that nobody was seriously injured in for this city. And then we saw some, some new brothers and sisters added to the family of God. We heard about men and women come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. We've seen people get jobs. We've seen families be moved, and we want to celebrate with them. We've heard of families who have lost children, and we've heard of families who have gained children and become pregnant. We want to celebrate with them. We want to suffer together, and we want to celebrate together because this shows that we care for one another. Paul looks at this body of disparate people, and you've got incredibly rich people in Corinth, you've got incredibly poor people in Corinth, and not a whole lot of middle class. This, this, this band that we've created in America just really isn't there. And so he goes to them, 
and in cultural in culture kind of out in the city streets so the rich people wouldn't talk to the poor and the poor wouldn't talk to the rich or they wouldn't expect to be spoken to and he comes to them all at one and he says all of you together you plural verse 27 are the body of christ and individually members of it and so he's radically uniting them slave and free rich and poor and so i believe that he would look at us today and speak to us today and say you where you sit you are individually members of christ together with all those around you, universally and locally. We only ever see the body of Christ manifested locally. We always read about it, and it's spoken of universally, but that church is only ever called for a role at the second coming of Christ. But we have an opportunity repeatedly, over and over again, to display what it is to be a part of the body of Christ. Paul wants them to understand there's so many different ways they can divide. There's so many different ways they can split up. And so he, he kind of gives them some samples of this in 28 through 30. He says, God has appointed first to the church apostles, second prophets, third miracles, and then he begins to lift, list these gifts, healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. And then he goes and he begins to ask questions, right? All anticipating that no would be the response to these questions. He says, are all apostles? And they would say, no. Are all prophets? And they'd say, no. Are all teachers? No. All, do all work miracles? No. Do all possess the gift of healing? They'd say, no. Do all speak with tongues? They'd say, no. Do all interpret? They'd say, no. These things aren't manifest. They're not displayed in every single person. So he comes to them. On the basis of this, what would you tell me to do? He says, earnestly desire the higher gift earnestly desire the higher gifts. Check this out. In some sense, they thought, this is what we've been doing and you've been blasting us for the last chapter for. We, we totally want to speak in tongues. We totally want to heal. We totally want these things. But I'm, I'm getting some mixed messages. What's going on here? See, Paul has reoriented their understanding. The higher gifts are those that you use for the benefit of those around you. Not those that somebody would point at and say, look at Matt, look at Ken, look at Bob. Look at Angela. Look at how great she is. Look at how amazing she is. And this would be his call for us today. Earnestly desire that your life might be poured out as an offering, that the gifts God has given you might be fundamentally impactful in the life of someone else. Earnestly desire. God has only given you one life live and you can absolutely waste it and you can absolutely fritter it away and everybody can look at you and say what a success he was what a success she was or you can pour out your life and leverage everything God has given you for the benefit of those around you and God will look at you and he will know your faithfulness and perhaps no one else around you will ever know your name. No one will know your story. When you die, no one will write an obituary. We have to live our lives with the understanding that we get to choose will we be faithful to God and impactful for those around us, even if it means suffering and a lack of recognition. Or will we follow the course of this world 
and seek to be phenomenally impactful, widely known, and widely celebrated. I think for the Christian, the choice is clear. We're going to choose the way of love that he begins to expand in chapter 13. To earnestly desire the higher gifts is to be fundamentally impactful in the lives of all those in the community that God has called you to live, to work, and to fellowship with. Amen? We pray for God's blessing upon us and the guidance of his Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for the movement of your spirit in our hearts. I thank you for the ways that you have gifted us individually, gifted us corporately, that we exist as one body, desiring to make much of you in all things. God, I pray for the one in this room, the people in this room who have not responded to your gospel, your son Jesus who came and lived and died so that they might know you, so that they might be forgiven. God, they are pouring out themselves, seeking to be useful and seeking to be impactful and hoping that through the, the doing of those things that they might be approved. God, they already stand approved in the person of Jesus who stands ready to receive them and forgive them. And so God, I pray that you would move in their heart to lead them to salvation. That they might move away from sin and towards love and forgiveness in Jesus. And God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room in the hearing of this. God, that they would see themselves as being absolutely indispensable, necessary for the body, necessary for your kingdom. All of us together, you have apportioned to us, you have commissioned us, you have called us, and you have set us about your work. Help us to be found faithful. Father, we submit these things to you. In your son Jesus' name, amen.